Number 19, and I want you to know that's that's our prayer for for our family, for for me individually, for the church at Hopewell, and I want you to know that's our prayer for you here at uh, the church at Mount Carmel, and for God, all of God's people that God would indeed revive us again. I don't know about you, but I feel a great need for revival in my own life, personal revival, for revival in the lives. Of God's people in our nation in which we live. Um, on our way up this morning, Kate made an observation. She said, "She said, Daddy, Brother Stephen moved all the way from Texas to Maryland to pastor." She said, "And we moved all the way from Maryland to Alabama to pastor." She said. Texas is a lot farther away than Alabama is from Maryland. And she understood, Brother Stephen, your sacrifice in coming here. And I want you as a church to be reminded of the sacrifice that he made in coming here. And I have felt a renewed appreciation for his sacrifice during our time in Alabama for this reason. I consider you here and Maryland missionaries. You may not consider yourself that, but after being raised in the Bible Belt after living here 10 years and then after getting to go back south, I feel and perceive very much how isolated you are and how on the front lines you are of sharing the gospel into the the New England area, the work you're doing in New York, what God did at Southampton, and hopefully he'll continue to do on up. We're thankful for and pray that God will continue to bless. I'm not man enough to do it. I don't know how Brother Stephen does because it gets discouraging when you feel isolated and when you feel alone. And I have been so thankful to be in Alabama where we've been able to have fellowship and attend meetings and get to hear preaching. And it's been reviving for me. And so our heart goes out to you here. We pray for you and pray God will send you encouragement. And uh, as far as Sister Carla and I are concerned, we just hope there'll be a great big revival that moves up from the south and comes up here and there'll be a lot more churches in this area that you can have fellowship with. We did have a, uh, a good day yesterday for Elder Jerry Macon Hunt. Uh, he celebrated 60 years in the ministry, uh, August 31st, uh, 1958. He was ordained and he'd been preaching for several years before that. He was around, I think, 27 years old. And... Uh, <clears throat> A lot of the ministers that had been mentored by him were able to make it. We had about 17 ministers from uh, different states throughout the South, Texas, Tennessee, and other places were able to come. And we wanted it to be honoring to the Lord, first of all. We don't want to glorify man, but we did want to thank God for the ministry of this man who had touched the lives of so many. Elder Hunt baptized my dad uh, when he was 10 years old, and... The church that he came to pastor there in McDonough, Georgia, my grandfather was the deacon of, and my grandfather called him, and they were about the same age in 1966, 1967, and asked him to consider coming to pastor the church at Ozias, Primitive Baptist Church in McDonough, Georgia. At the time, the church had 
19 members. One of the documents that was, writ was read uh, yesterday was the pastoral letter that he wrote to the church after being pastor for one year, 1968. And in that letter, he recorded how at the beginning, when he came to the church in March, they had 19 members. And as of the following January, they had been blessed to increase to 34 members in that short amount of time. That growth and that um, revival continued for several years. And I think within a matter of years, they were up to about 100 members. God blessed them with a special outpouring of his spirit. Elder Hunt told me that during that time, there wasn't a Sunday that would go by that he would not come out of the stand that he already had on his heart what he was going to preach the next Sunday. God had poured out their spirit about, upon them. And there were other things going on as well. We heard of a, a minister gave a testimony yesterday about how God worked in his life in a mighty way at a camp uh, gathering they were having and how uh, God uh, worked on him and used Elder Hunt. He was ready to, um, to hurt himself the fire there and Elder Hunt perceived that and he said you know usually when somebody's standing behind a fire they're kind of silhouetted out and he said that he was able to see through the fire and he could see every wrinkle in Elder Hunt's clothing and it was like the brightness and the glory of Christ was shining through uh, Elder Hunt and God used him in a mighty way in this man's life and this man eventually became a preacher um about 10 years ago, Brother Jerry had uh, major heart problems, and they were giving him matter of, a matter of days to live, and he was in the hospital, and he told me that when he was laying there in his bed, he saw the devil. And people asked him, well, what did the devil look like? He said, well, he was dressed real nice, he had a nice business suit on, and in fact, he looked like me. And he said, the devil was sitting on the window, and he was laughing at me. And he was saying, Jerry, you're never going to preach again. Your preaching days are over. Well, that was 10 years ago, or more. And when we moved to Maryland, I remember having the same thought. I thought, you know, I'm thankful for Brother Jerry, and I think his time here is about to wrap up. Well, God raised him up. God revived him. And now he's outlived his wife and his son. And he's going to Silver Sneakers three days a week, which is a... Uh, an, an older person, a workout program they have there in Alabama. Um, he still has a lot of fire to preach and hoping he'll have another 60 years to keep going. But Carl and I are thankful to be down there and we're mindful of the sacrifice the church has made here and thankful for y'all letting us go and, and be there with them at Hopewell. I want to turn in the scriptures to the book of Luke chapter 2. If you'd like to follow along, Luke chapter 2. Probably a familiar passage of scripture for this time of year. I'm sure you've heard this read before. Um, maybe if you're older, you've heard it read in school. Um, if nowhere else, you may have heard it on Charlie Brown's Christmas. But here in Luke chapter 2, we have Luke's account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. If you've come here this morning, I assume it's for the purpose of worshiping God. 
you have a desire to worship God, if you have a desire to uh, see His glory, we know that's a work of God's grace. No man can come to the Father, Jesus said. No man can come to me except my Father which is in heaven draw him. John chapter 6, and Jesus said, All the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That's the irresistible call of God's grace. Even for God's children, it's easy to go through the motions. That's what that song, Revive Us Again, is about. You know, we all need to come to a point of conversion. God's children, when they're quickened, need to be converted by the truth of who Jesus Christ is, by the fact that our sins have been forgiven by the shed blood of our Redeemer. We need to be converted to the truth that He's the Lord. He's the one that we should worship. And we shouldn't worship ourselves and worship anyone else. But even after that happens, sometimes we need to be revived and be encouraged and be reminded and be stirred up in our love and our zeal and our affection for Jesus Christ. How is it with your soul today? you've been converted, maybe you haven't been converted, maybe you say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't need God. I don't even know if there is a God and I'm not sure who Jesus is. Maybe you're there. But if you are a Christian, you've been converted and you believe. You've believed on the Son of God, the name of the Son of God. How is it with your soul today? How is it with my soul? Are we in a state of Growth and joy and spiritual prosperity? Or are we languishing on the vine? Is, is there very little fruit in our life because we're not abiding in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, and so shall you bear much fruit in John chapter 15. The angel of the Lord came upon these shepherds. They weren't expecting him, but the angel of the Lord came to make an announcement. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The glory of the Lord was revealed to them. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. Is it a good thing to desire God's glory, to see God's glory? These angels, when they saw the glory of God, when the glory of the Lord shone round about them, it says that they were afraid. Remember, Moses desired to see the glory of God. He said, Show me your glory. And God said, No man can see my glory and live. The Bible says that Jesus, He's the brightness of God's glory. He's the express image of God's person. Do we want to see, do we need to see the glory of God? Yes, we do. Seeing the glory of God, like Isaiah, who saw the Lord high and lifted up in the year that Uzziah died. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And the house was filled with smoke. And He saw the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's not that God's not glorious. It's the fact that our eyes are blinded to the reality of His glory. When Isaiah's uh, eyes were opened, when Isaiah, uh, the, veil, the, tra- the, the veil was removed and he was able to see into heaven and see the glory of God, he said, Woe is me! For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What happens when the glory of God shows up? The people of God get convicted of our sins. We see our defilement. We see our impurities. We see our wickedness. 
Not as the world views it from the outward, but we see the inward, the heart motives, the, the evil desires, the, the lust, the wrath, the fear, the ungodliness that we're plagued with in our sin nature. These shepherds were afraid when the glory of God was revealed to them. And the angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Do you know the word there, good tidings? That's where we get the, the word gospel. That's simply what the word gospel means. The gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the good tidings, the good news of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What does an evangelist do? An evangelist declares the good news to those who have not heard it before. That Jesus is the Son of God. That He's the prophet, priest, and king of His people. That the one who could have come in judgment to condemn an ungodly, wicked, godless society and culture. That He came not with wrath, not with judgment, but He came in humility and with love. To fulfill the law of God on behalf of His elect. And to offer a perfect sacrifice for sin. He says this is good tidings of great joy. Which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Which is Christ the Lord. The birth of Jesus Christ. He says is good news. Of great joy, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Does that mean that, that every person's going to rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ? No, that's not what it means. But it means that the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Christ, the Jewish Savior, the King of the Jews, was coming to do something far greater than just save the nation of Israel. The natural descendants of Abraham. He was come to be the savior of his spiritual Israel. Out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's good news for great sinners. The coming of Jesus Christ was spoken of many years before he came. In fact, in the book of Daniel, if you read carefully, you'll find that it seems, if you're able to understand what God was telling Daniel, and Daniel didn't understand everything God was telling him, that God was telling him almost to the exact day and time when Jesus was going to come. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9. Well, in Isaiah, who lived about 500 years or so before Jesus was born, God prophesied through Isaiah about the coming of the Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, this Messianic prophecy says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. This is something that would happen in the future, but Isaiah speaks of it at the present. He says a child is born, a son is given. This prophecy is in reference to uh, the, the first prophecy given to mankind when God said to the serpent, I will, um, the seed of the woman, I'll put enmity between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise 
his heel. The woman was going to have a child. The woman was going to have a man-child, a boy who would become a man, who his work would be to crush the head of the serpent. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. If you're careful in reading the scriptures, then you would have known in the days of Isaiah that we were looking for, according to God's promise, a son to be born. A son who would straighten out all of the wrongs in our life. A son who would fix everything that's broken about us. A son who would save us from our enemies. A son who would be our king. A son who would set us free from the captors and from the enemies of our soul who seek our destruction. A child is born. A son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This son is going to be a ruler. The authority is going to be given to him. The power is going to be given to him. He's going to have the right to rule. He's going to have the wisdom to rule. For our benefit. For our spiritual prosperity. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Listen to those names of Jesus. He's called Wonderful. He's called our Counselor. He's called the Mighty God. He's called the Everlasting Father. And I want to come back to that in a minute. He's called the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it, and to establish with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God had told King David, great King David, a a man after God's own heart, a courageous and victorious warrior who slew the giant Goliath. King David, you're going to have a son and there's going to be no end to his kingdom. And David may have thought God was talking about Solomon, but Solomon's kingdom came to an end. The son of David here prophesied is talking about Jesus Christ. The son of Abraham, the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne of David. And upon his kingdom, the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. In Luke 22, in Isaiah 22, we have another reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 20 of of Isaiah 22, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut. And none shall open. If you're a Bible student, you know that Jesus quotes this verse in Revelation chapter 3 when he speaks to one of the churches there in the book of Revelation. But notice here that it says that Jesus is going to be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's you and I today. That's, that's God's children in God's kingdom. He's a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. That's in reference to his government. That's in reference to his rule over us. When it says that he's going to, his name is going to be Everlasting Father, it's not saying that Jesus is God the Father. No, God the Father and God the Son are distinct persons in the Trinity. 
but it's talking about him being the everlasting father, the one who in his capacity as our king, this one who rules over us is like a father to us. Remember in Hebrews 2 how Jesus says, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. Jesus is our elder brother. We're, his, we're the heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed, he said, Our Father which art in heaven, the same Father that Jesus prayed to, we pray to as God's children today. And when it says that Jesus is the everlasting Father, it's talking about his role as our king, as our ruler. He's the one who rules over us for our spiritual prosperity. We need revival. Jesus came to save us from our sins. You know, the Jews were anticipating salvation when the Messiah came. When the Christ came, they were expecting deliverance from their enemies. Maybe you've been in situations that were uncertain, that were scary, that were frustrating. Maybe you've had thoughts of if so-and-so was here, if I could just get in touch with this individual, they'd be able to help me work through this. They'd be able to uh, fix this problem for me. The Jews were looking to the coming Christ to fix their national struggles, to fix their embarrassment, to fix their poverty. But the spiritual Israel, those elect in the nation of Israel, those who were born of God's spirit, and for you today, recognized that they needed salvation from something worse than any external enemy. The greatest enemy of your soul, the greatest enemy of my soul today, is my sin nature. It's your sin nature. It's our, our, our traitorness, or whatever you want to say it, against our own well-being. Our willingness to sell ourselves to sin. To give ourselves to idolatry. What are you worshiping today? Who are you worshiping today? You know the reason that we've come to God's house is to meet with God. I I love you all. You're pretty people. I like to see you and be with you. But more than just having a get together day on Sunday morning. I want to have an encounter with God. I want to come to God's house to worship God. Not to impress you with how nicely I dress. Not to see how nicely you can dress. But to have an encounter with God and to see God's glory. And we need to come to God's house with that expectation. That we've come to worship God. And we've come in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we've come with great expectations. That because He has a great Son and we have a great Savior. That God delights to bless us. For who Jesus is and for what Jesus has done for us. And so we can say like the Hebrew writer said, come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How badly do we want revival in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives, in the lives of our loved ones? How badly do we want uh, deliverance from sin in our lives? How badly do we want the glory of God? And to encounter His glory. And to be able to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Beloved, we're worshiping creatures. We were created to worship. And it doesn't matter uh, what you think. The reality is, you're worshiping something today. My question to you, and my question to me, and my question to my family, and my question to other believers, in other primitive Baptist churches, in other uh, Christian denominations, who or what 
are you worshiping? Who or what am I worshiping today? Who sits upon the throne of our hearts at Hopewell Primitive Baptist Church, at Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church? Who is sitting on the throne today? We say we believe in the kingdom of God that it's not meat and drink, Romans 14, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where Jesus Christ dwells and His glory is revealed and His authority is acknowledged. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. But just like Isaiah was blind to it until God was pleased to show him, it takes God's grace to open our eyes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. If you've seen the glory of God, if God's shown you your sin, if He's shown you just a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, an expiring, dying, bleeding friend, bleeding Savior, suffering on the cross, not for His own sins, oh no. Not for the sins of His best friends, absolutely not. No, bleeding and suffering and dying for the sins of His enemies, of those who would spit upon Him, of those who would scoff Him, of those who would ridicule Him, Of those who would reject his ministry. Of those who would be embarrassed to be identified with him. Of those who would uh, uh, run away in fear. When Pilate's horde came. And when the the chief priest came. Of those who would plaid a crown of thorns and place it upon his head. Of those who would drive nails into his hands and into his feet. Of those who would reward a godly, honorable, perfect, righteous man. With iniquity and contempt. Those are the people that he died for. Those are the people said, he said to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How great the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. There's the love of God. There, beloved, is the glory of God. And if your eyes have not been open to that, then you know what? You're going to be like the unbelieving Jews and the unbelieving uh, Greeks and Gentiles. To the Jew, Jesus Christ is a stumbling block. To the philosophers, to the wise men, to the powerful in the world, Jesus Christ is foolishness. But to us which are saved, He's the power of God. He's the glory of God. He's the wisdom of God. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of worship. He's the revelation of God's glory. Have you seen Him today? Do you believe in Him by faith that He's the Son of God? That He came to do what God promised would happen in the Old Testament? That He offered a perfect sacrifice? That He was crucified according to the Scriptures? That He was buried according to the Scriptures? And that He rose again the third day like He promised He would? That He rose for our justification? That He ascended on high? That He ever liveth to make intercession for us? And happy day He's coming back and He's coming to take His ransom home and to judge this world and to burn burn it up And that there'll be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Who or what are we worshiping today? Is it Jesus Christ? Is Jesus truly on the throne of our hearts? Is he truly in our eyes that pearl of great price? That that treasure to be desired. That treasure hidden in a field. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. I just confess and I apologize to you because it was, I was guilty of this when we lived here for the last year or so. 
of seeking these things first rather than seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness first. And that's a terrible sin. The Bible says you cannot serve God and mammon. You have to take that on the authority of God's word. And I'll tell you by my experience, I've tried it and I found that verse to be true. You can't serve God and mammon, which simply means worldly riches. You can't serve God and the things that this world highly esteems. Who sits on the throne of your heart? What sits on the throne of your heart? Who or what are we worshiping today? We're created to worship. God created us to worship Him. And the devil tempted our mother Eve and father Adam to worship something other than God. And do you know what they substituted in their place? God, when they disobeyed Him, was dethroned in the heart of mankind. And in His place, we erected the statue and the idol of self. Are you worshiping yourself today? Is your will, is your pleasure, is your desire, is your fears, is that what rules your actions and your emotions and your decisions and your words? Or is it the Word of God? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? And thus saith the Word of God. The marvel of God's grace, the, the message of the gospel is that God's power is so great, He can take an idolatrous, self-worshipping sinner and convert them and change them into a God-adoring worshiper. Who or what do we worship today? Revive us again. Revive us again. Revival, I believe, occurs when God's people are truly worshiping God. And He sits upon the throne of our hearts. And we desire Him above everything else. I remember the first time we preached here at Mount Carmel. My text was in Psalm 119. And that text was very precious to me then and it still is it's a great blessing now. Let's see if I can find it. Psalm 119 verse 14 says, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. You know one thing that really helps if you're feeling spiritually cold if you're feeling far from the Lord, if you're hearing what, what I'm saying this morning, and you're saying, I know that's probably me. I need revival. But how does that happen? Well, first of all, it's only by God's grace. It's by the outpouring of His Holy Spirit. I like what Brother Zach Guest has said. If I do anything good, God gets all the credit. And if I do anything evil... I take 100% of the responsibility. If God blesses you with revival, He has to get all the credit. But one thing that you can do and I can do practically, and I've experienced this, you know, 
Brother Stephen will probably testify to this, and Elder Aquino and, and others. When you have to preach every Sunday, it forces you to read God's, God's Word. And when you have the responsibility of doing that, you feel the necessity of being in God's Word. <clears throat> when we moved to Alabama, you remember I had come off a, a time here at Mount Carmel where I said, I just don't have time to study. If there's anybody else that you can call on, call on them to preach. And when we got to Alabama, it was like I had to go from zero to 100 in about five seconds. And I'll just tell you, God may stop me after this since I'm going to tell you publicly, but I started voraciously devouring the scriptures. And, uh, and then I started in Jeremiah in March when we moved down there, and my bookmark now is... Um, I'm finishing up Proverbs, and I'm also in Isaiah. So just in a matter of weeks, I'll be done with reading the scriptures through in less than a year. I've never read that much scripture, about 10 chapters a day or so on average. Well, look, you can't help but be benefited from that. The Bible says, I rejoice in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. One real good practical thing we can do if we need revival is to spend a little bit more time in God's word. Now, for you, you preachers, I want to give you a warning that I have learned the hard way as well. A preacher can have the temptation to only read his Bible in preparing for a sermon. And to think, how can I turn this scripture into a lesson for the people? Preachers need to read the Bible first as Christians and as God's children. And then study as a preacher. I rejoice in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. We need to be feasting on the word of God. And you know, when we do that, the Bible says that we're going to grow. Reading the Bible, reading God's word, meditating upon the scriptures is like spiritual nourishment. And the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. And so, <clears throat> the first qualification is you've got to have tasted God's grace. You've got to have a spiritual understanding of the grace of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. What's the grace of God? The grace of God is that He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, to die a horrible death for undeserving, hell-deserving sinners because of His Favor, because of his bounty, because of his love. And if the Holy Spirit applies that truth to our heart, then we're going to know we're God's children. And we're going to desire to honor God. You know, I've heard people say, well, if I believed in salvation by grace, then I would just take my fill of sin and I'd live any old way because I know it wouldn't matter because God's already paid the price for my sin. Well, you, you may come to that conclusion as an unbeliever, but if you're a child of God, if God's Spirit's inside of you, then your greatest desire is going to be to honor God. You're going to have the fear of God in you and the desire to live a life that's pleasing in His sight. Paul dealt with that error in Romans chapter 6. He said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Just because God's grace is greater than our sin, there's no excuse to be indifferent to the fact that you and I have sin that has to be battled with. A sin nature that has to be mortified and put to death. Sinful desires that have to be denied by God's grace. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. God's word has a sanctifying influence, has a purifying influence in our lives when it's believed by faith and applied by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's in God's word that we see the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see and we come to understand and appreciate the character of Jesus Christ more clearly. The more sermons you listen to, the more scriptures you read, the more uh, teaching you receive from God's Word helps you spiritually to mature and to grow and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says this, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The glass, the looking glass that we're looking into, it's not a mirror where you see your own mugshot. The glass that we're looking into that's held up before our face is the Word of God. And as we look into God's Word, we see the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. We behold the face of Jesus Christ. He's revealed to us as the Spirit uh, opens our eyes to the Word of God. And as we behold Him, the Bible says we're changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Why do God's children love one another? Why do we have a special affection for God's children? Because we see in one another, in one another's character, in the fruit in your lives. We see the glory of our Lord. We see the revelation of the presence of God living within you. And the the Lord that I love. And the Lord that you love. And the Lord that lives inside of us. We can rejoice in seeing Him manifested in the lifestyle and in the decisions and in the speech and in the conduct of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible says iron sharpeneth iron. How we need to be an encouragement to one another, not a discouragement. Oh, how we can discourage one another by our sinful decisions, by having our priorities out of place, by an inconsiderate word or action. Oh, we need revival. Another thing that will bless you within spirit of revival, reading God's word. You know, we can pray for God to give us his spirit. He gives us the spirit in the new birth. There are multiple times in the book of Acts. Remember, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down uh, from above and abode upon them like cloven tongues and tongues of fire. God gives his spirit, not only in the new birth, but he gives his spirit for the purpose of service. And when God breathes upon us with His Spirit, He can cause us to be revived. We need God's Word. We need God's Spirit. One thing that helps me a lot is having hope. 
One thing that helps me to be revived is to believe that there's hope in seemingly hopeless circumstances. Have you ever made such a mess out of a situation by your own bad decisions that you say, there's just no hope. There's nothing good that can come out of this. There's no way uh, uh, anything beneficial can come out of this. And there's no way it can be fixed. There's no way it can be undone. You know, the Bible says I'm to forget those things which are behind and press under those things which are before. But I just don't have any hope about this situation or about this individual or about this trial that we're going through. Well, beloved, I want to end this morning with a message to you and that there is, there is hope. The Bible says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That joy, I believe, is fueled by the reality of, you know, whose we are, what He's done for us, what He's promised to us. But He's given us something. The Bible calls it an anchor. He's given us something that we can put our faith in, that we can put our trust in, that we can rely upon, so that we have hope. What is hope? Hope is the expectation of future good. And it's not just a, uh, the way our culture uses it sometimes. Well, I, I hope I'll win the lottery someday. It's not an it's not a irrational uh, wish for the future. No, we're talking about a rational, based in reality, based upon the Word of God, based upon the promises of God, an expectation for future good that's guaranteed to us by the person and work of Jesus Christ, who no man can dethrone, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, and who's promised to bless us as His children because of His finished work on the cross. It says, verse 17 of Hebrews 6, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set, set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. An anchor of the soul. We've got a hope today in Jesus Christ that if we can lay hold of that, if we can be reminded of that, if we can live in the light of that, beloved, I believe that's going to cause us to be revived and to have great joy in not just what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and what he's guaranteed us uh, for our distant future whenever he returns, but for the immediate life in which we're living right now, for the, for the expectations of today and of tomorrow, we can have hope. We can have an expectation for God to be with us and for God to bless us and for God to keep his word because he's faithful, because he cannot lie, and because he's confirmed it with an oath. He hasn't just said it. He's promised it. He's promised to bless you. He's promised to help you. He's promised to give beauty for ashes. He's promised to be a faithful God. The Bible says, I, God says, I, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. In Romans chapter 5, it says that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, mark it down today. One of Satan's fiery darts that he throws against you is this idea that there's a, it's a hopeless situation. And we can have on that helmet of salvation. We can have on 
Which, which piece is it? The piece of hope. I can't remember. Ephesians chapter 6. One of them has reference to hope. I think. The whole armor of God. Your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spear, which is the word of God. I think maybe it's in Thessalonians. He refers to one of those pieces as hope. I may be wrong on that. Nevertheless, the point still remains. If you're anything like me, Satan can use the lie of hopelessness and despair. To make you say, well, you know, I know my destiny is secure by what Jesus Christ has done. But I've just about given up on flourishing and prospering and being joyful in the Lord in this life. To be hopeless and say, I've just made such a mess of it. <clears throat> Somebody hurt me so bad, there's just nothing good that can come out of this. Now look, Jacob and Joseph, father and son, were equally children of God. God blessed both of them with promises. God blessed their children. They were both children of God. And you and I have a choice each day. We can be like Jacob or we can be like Joseph. Jacob, when he found out that he was going to have to send Benjamin down into Egypt, he said, all these things are against me. I'm bereaved of my son Joseph, and now you're going to take Benjamin He said, all these things are against me. How is it with you today? How is it with me today? Do you look and count on your finger? Well, this is going wrong, and this is going wrong, and so and so did this, and this is happening, and I don't know how we're going to get out of this scrape we're in. All these things are against me. Where is the Lord? That's what the devil would like you to think about. He'd like you to wonder in your mind, if God's on the throne, if God loves me, how come all of this is happening? Yes, I made these bad decisions, but God let me make these bad decisions. Why didn't he stop me? Why didn't he send somebody to give me some good counsel and say, hey, you need to go the other direction? Or maybe he did send those counselors and I disregarded them. Still, Lord, can't you help me in this situation? Jacob was still blessed by God. Jacob still got to see not only Benjamin, but also Joseph. But Jacob had this despair and this hopeless attitude that now he's lost Joseph and now he's also going to lose Benjamin. And there's just no hope. In this situation. We can choose to have that attitude. Or. We can choose by God's grace to have. A different attitude. If you want to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph. And his brethren. Mourned the loss of their dad. Jacob. Jacob's gone. Joseph's left with his brethren. Who sold him into slavery. His brothers who wanted to kill him and throw him in the pit. His brothers who envied him. His brothers who had hated him. His brothers who were now at his feet and under his mercy. And his brothers came to him and said, they fell down before his face and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. They're no dummies. Joseph's the second in command. He has all his authority. They had the mutual affection for their father. But now that dad's gone... What's Joseph going to do with us? And notice Joseph's response. Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? You know, let's get real practical when we talk about 
believing God's word and saying Jesus is the Lord of my life. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, turn the other cheek. If someone smites you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Somebody takes away your coat, your cloak, give to him your coat also. I'm paraphrasing here. See if I can read it to you. Don't mess it up. If any man will, whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. The world would say, well, if you really take him literally, if you do exactly what he's telling you to do there by faith, the world's going to just take advantage of you. And you're going to be mistreated. And you're going to be walked all over like a doormat. And, uh, and nobody's going to respect you. You've got to stand up for yourself. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. When he says, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good in Romans chapter 12. Resist not evil. The way we're to fight the, the evilness of sin is not with more sin. Not with a bigger hand. Not with a stronger arm. But with grace and with love and with mercy. Joseph understood this, and he said, I'm not in God's stead. I'm not your judge. You're going to answer to God for what you did against me. He says, but as for you, you thought evil against me. Joseph was at a place in his maturity where he saw that although what he went through for 13 years was miserable, it was embarrassing, it was frustrating, it it took patience to endure that. Being sold into slavery and then being falsely accused and cast into prison. You meant, you meant evil against me. And what was their reason for that? Had he done them any wrong? No. They simply envied him. They envied the dreams that he had. The expectation that he was going to rule over them someday. They hated him for that. They hated that their father seemed to like him more than the rest of them. He had a coat of many colors. He was the preferred son. They envied him, they hated him, they wanted to kill him. He says, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. I want you to mark it down. That for me, that's my source of hope in trusting in God's providence day by day. It's pretty pretty depressing for me, pretty discouraging for me to think that God's blessings in my life are dependent upon my obedience and my perfect following his word and his law. That's depressing. But it gives me hope to believe that God's grace is greater than my sin. That where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Paul already addressed that. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Say, Brother Asa, you're on slippery ground. If you really teach that, people are going to just start being careless in their warfare against sin. No. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If you use the grace of God as an excuse to justify your sin, then you have strong calls to question whether you're saved, whether you're a child of God, whether you've been born again. Because when you're quickened, God's spirit comes to live inside of you. The Bible tells us not to grieve God's spirit, not to quench his spirit. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
If you're continuing in some sin without conviction from the Holy Spirit, without a sense of your guilt before God, then there's very strong evidence that you have not been born again. And you need God's grace to save you from your sins. If we've been saved by God's grace, then like I already said, our desire is going to be to serve God and not to do anything that would grieve Him. You know, the Holy Spirit's inside of you. The Holy Spirit goes with you. He goes with me everywhere we go. He hears everything we say. He's a part of us in everything that we do. And that's why Paul comes down so hard on the sin of fornication and sexual immorality. Because he says you're coupling the temple of God to an idol. The Holy Spirit is with you in what you do with your body. And so we're to honor God with our tabernacles, with our bodies, with the dwelling place of His Spirit. Shall we sin? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Beloved, if you've been born again, if you've been quickened, if you've been regenerated, if you've been saved by God's grace, then you are, in a sense, dead to your sin nature. Not that it's impossible for you to sin, Not that it's easy for you not to sin. But you are no longer a slave to your sinful desires and your sinful way of life. You've been illuminated by the Spirit of God. And you recognize that what you're doing is sinful and it's wrong. And it needs to be put to death. And it needs to be put away. And those works of the flesh that can be summarized as uh, immoral, ungodly, carnal appetites. And ungodly wrath and anger, and envy, and ungodly covetousness, those those sinful passions that motivate people and inspire people to do great things that are sinful and wrong, those passionate, ungodly desires that come from a sinful nature, that's to be crucified, it's to be put to death, it's to be stamped out. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you've experienced these things, he says, if you've been risen with Christ, Colossians 3.1, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Say, Brother Asa, that's great for the Apostle Paul. That's great for a few ministers here and there. But that's just not practical. That's just not possible in the day in which we live. In the lifestyle in which we find ourselves. In the rat race in which we run every day. How can I set my mind? How can I have my mind and heart bent On pursuing and desiring those things which are above. He doesn't say it's easy. But he says for you to do it by the grace of God. Your life. Your soul. Your salvation. That part of you which is going to continue for eternity. And when Jesus Christ comes back is going to be joined to an immortal body. A sinless body. Your soul. Your life. Is hid with Christ in God. And where is Christ? 
Who is our light? Where is Jesus Christ today? Where is the brightness of God's glory? Where is God's precious Son? He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And God says for you to think on Him. For you to love Him. For you to have your affection on Him. For you to have your desire towards Him. For you to long for Him. For you to be like the early saints who were saying, Lord, come quickly. Who, like Paul said, uh, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is not some kind of radical occult religion. This is New Testament Christianity. That you and I, by God's grace, when we're revived, can experience. Not just uh, hypocritically, not just externally, not just putting on a show. But in our heart of hearts, in our souls, to be so uh, affected with the love of Christ and with the grace of God. That we can sing that song that the children sang this morning. To be able to go to certain death with joy and with love and with affection. And say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can that be in our lives if we're not doing the first part, which is living for Christ? The Bible teaches us to glorify Him in everything that we do and say. Whether we're, whether we're working, whether we're cleaning uh, bathtubs or toilets whether we're vacuuming, whether we're cooking a meal, whether we're changing dirty diapers, whether we're uh, driving someone to a, to a, a hospital appointment, whether we're studying our school books, whether we're, we're sick and in the hospital and unable to go to church, but maybe we're able to have a conversation with the person in the bed next to us, Whatever place of life you're in. Sometimes I know older, older people, when they're sick, maybe they're in the nursing home, will get real depressed. And maybe they'll get hopeless and think, you know what, I, my, my usefulness is used up. I don't have any strength. My memory's going. Why doesn't God just take me on home? Well, I would submit to you that if you're here, even if you're a vegetable, God's got a purpose for you. And he's going to use you to bring glory to himself and to be a blessing to his people. And by faith, we're able to experience that and enjoy that, that God's using us and that God is being glorified and that God's ruling in our lives and he's reigning in providence and he's working it to accomplish a glorious thing. And that is the second coming of Jesus Christ when Christ is revealed and the trumpet is blown and the clouds part and the Lord descends and every eye sees and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, set your affections on him. He's coming and he's coming soon. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Oh, but it's so easy. It's so easy to focus on what kind of car do I drive? How big's my house? How much money do I have saved? How big's my family? What are my prospects for marriage? When am I going to graduate from college? How many children or grandchildren do I have or don't have? These worldly things, these earthly things. You're dead to these things. Your life is hid with Christ in God. If you were to look at Jesus' life without the lens of faith, would you say that he was a successful man? He was a carpenter by trade and he abandoned that to start a new religion. He took 12 men, one betrayed him, and the rest abandoned him. 
He died when he was not yet 34, mocked, ridiculed, forsaken, even by God. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered grievously. And, on top of all that, he was completely innocent and just and perfect. Would you say he was victorious? Would you say he achieved excellence? Would you say he was a business success? you don't have the eye of faith, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you would have to conclude, if you know these facts, that Jesus was a dreamer who died, and in his death he proved that his dreams were just a figment of his imagination. But 2,000 years later, as we look back on the empty tomb, and we're here today by God's grace, proclaiming the same message that those frightened apostles, those 11 frightened apostles, and the Apostle Paul, it's one born out of due time, were proclaiming. That Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost. That the Apostle Paul went through out Asia Minor preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those that heard him carried it on. And those that heard them carried it on. And eventually some carried it across the Atlantic. And then some came and they preached it here, probably at Old Brick. And then in the 1930s, a group of believers led by Elder R.H. Pittman came and established a church here at Mount Carmel in Bel Air, Maryland. And what blessings have we received from God's grace and God's providence and God's power to take the message and the, the message of the Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to have that message proclaimed to the life-changing impact of His people. As many as were ordained by God believed the gospel. And I'll close with this. Paul says in Romans 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, And also to the Greek. Notice the salvation comes after the belief. It doesn't help you. It doesn't benefit you if you don't believe in it. You can't believe in it unless you've been born again. But if you've been born again. And you hear the preaching of the gospel. And you respond in faith. And the Bible says it's the power of God in your life. The power of God for us to be revived. The power of God for our sin to be exposed. The power of God for us to repent of our sins. The power of God for us to believe and to hope and to put all of our trust, our eternal uh, hope in this man named Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, buried, and rose again the third day who came to save his people from their sins. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. 
We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.